0: Hello, wonderful patrons of Left Anchor, or other listeners who might be listening along, maybe in the car, maybe in a dorm room. Maybe you've bootlegged this episode. Maybe it's a preview. Whoever you are, thank you for listening. I'm Alexei the Greek, and uh, this episode's a good one. You're really going to enjoy it. Very interesting conversation with Professor Olafemi Tewo. Uh, the book is Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. And the conversation covers important ground, uh, especially for the left, as as it covers the reasons why identity politics, which is rooted in a history of radical politics, radical queer black politics, in fact, uh, and a history that involves um, radical understandings of intersectionality and solidarity and how it's been appropriated and why it's been appropriated to serve uh, elite interests, neoliberal interests. And the idea behind the book in part in the argument has to do with how elite capture, this concept that uh, Professor uh, Tawo draws out, is something much broader than just what's going on with identity politics, but really is a social system uh, and therefore, a systemic problem that captures so many things and helps us understand why we have such confusing uh, debates sometimes between liberals, leftists, and reactionaries um, over ideas like identity politics, right? And so it's a really interesting conversation that drills down into the kind of the origins of these problems uh, and what the left can do about them. And a constructive politics that he argues for based on solidarity and understanding the international and interconnected ways that these problems arise <clears throat> and therefore must be resisted um, in kind, right? So uh, – you know, before we get to that episode and that great conversation, a reminder for you patrons that if you're not already subscribers to the American Prospect, the American Prospect magazine is our official sponsor. And so they have given a free digital subscription offer to those who want to level up to the $10 left tenant tier of patronage. Um, you know, or if, if you're you know listening and are not yet a patron, um, feel free to enter at the $5 level for the for the locked episodes, but the $10 level gives you that free digital subscription and an opportunity for a heavily discounted print subscription as well. Regardless, whoever you are, thank you so much for listening. And without further ado, let's get to the episode. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexei the Greek.
1: And I'm Ryan Cooper. We've uh, we've got a special guest today, uh, Femi Taiwo. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yep. Um, who is an assistant professor of uh, philosophy at Georgetown University, um, a place I'm quite familiar with, and an author of the uh, book Elite Capture. Wait, there's a subtitle on that, isn't there?
0: He he never likes to say the subtitles, but they're always important, Ryan. How the powerful took over identity politics, parenthetical, and everything else.
1: Um, good. yeah, no, yeah, we, we got to have the sub. Everybody's got to have a subtitle. That's the rule. Um, true. you know, and you can't break it for fear of being exiled. You know, onto an island someplace. My book had one too. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so. Welcome Femi. Um to to get us, you know, sort of started in the um you know the the discourse here. You know, I was reading through your your book and um a cup uh not even like a week ago, I was I was uh, attending a, a graduation ceremony at a grad school that I I won't mention which one, but um it beforehand Uh, that actually during the ceremony, rather, they had, you know, they had sort of professors speaking, they had students speaking and, you know, sort of doing the whole song and dance, getting your diploma and whatnot. One of these students, uh, talked about how, uh, she was going to work at Bain Capital. And one of the reasons she was going to do that was so that she could represent the Uh, sort of impoverished black community in West Philadelphia. And it's like my mind just sort of zeroed in on on the argument, you know, or the, you know, it immediately brought to mind the type of thing that, you know, you were mentioning there and, you know, not to cast any sort of aspersions on this particular person who I won't mention, you know, um, who I don't know either. Uh, and I think, you know, I'm sure she was doing this in total good faith, but it struck me as like a, a kind of an example of the type of thing you were talking about there. So, so could you, um, sort of ec- explain to us this notion of, of capture specifically how how people can sort of take this take identity politics and sort of twist it maybe even unwittingly to their own devices
2: yeah so the basic thing that i'm trying to describe with this term elite capture um i got started thinking about by thinking about you know these kind of individual level cases right um which, which are going to be very psychologically different, right? Like, so, for example, in your case, you know, maybe as you said, right, seems like we could think this is a good faith, you know, this is just this person's perspective at this particular time, right? There's more cynical versions where people think, you know, how can I, you know, use this language of identity politics to support whatever it is that I'm up to. Um, there's things that are kind of in between where people maybe are, Undecided about what their political views are, but they're just kind of going with the flow. They're using whatever anti-racist, you know, uh, anti-patriarchy terminology or habits are out there. And, you know, all those cases are different from each other. I'm sure there's a bunch that don't fit into any of those three. But the thing that's consistent at the level of society is that i think in general uses of identity politics tend to gravitate towards things that are that are simpler that are more divorced from radical politics etc cetera, etc cetera, right despite so so despite all the differences between the psychology of the people who might show up in these individual level stories there's this more consistent difference across time where you know this idea that started off with, um, you know, a radical group of uh, black, queer, women, socialists, right, who came up with this term identity politics in the first place, Um, it ends up marking things, you know, that are are different from that perspective and that are less radical, that pose less of a challenge to the status quo. And so really, one of the things that is central to how I'm understanding this is I want to get across the idea that the system the society level thing of identity politics gravitating towards you know the center that's elite capture it's, it's 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 it might show up in different ways for different people at the level of like an episode or a story right but it's a system behavior it is the system responding it is the system responding disproportionately to the people who are most advantaged in society.
0: Right. And it seems to me that – I want to look at two things there. Right? One is um, the point you make that uh, although it's true that that elite capture involves elites, it doesn't mean there's a conspiracy or they all have the same motives. And, and, and so maybe we could get into what you mean then by the system or the systemic capture by elites – um, but also, uh, I think uh, it's worth teasing out that you argue identity politics itself is not generating the elite capture. It's that elite capture is taking and using and appropriating, uh, identity politics for its own benefit, like it does with other things. So it's like under the umbrella of elite capture, which does the same thing elsewhere as well. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. So, there are two kinds of inputs into elite capture. Um, and the thing I've been saying these days is think of elite capture not as an on or off switch, but more like a thermometer, right? Elite capture can be more or less severe um, in the way that wealth inequality can be more or less severe, right? The rich person might have 10 times as much money as you, or they might have just a 100 times more money than you. And those are two very different social situations, right? So... One of the things that makes elite capture more intense is what I just said, right? Just the underlying inequalities being larger in and of themselves. Um, so the society that has you know, rich people with 10 times as much as the average person is going to have less elite capture than the society that has 100 times as much wealth concentrated in the billionaire class than in the average person. so the bare levels of inequality are one thing that make elite capture more severe but the other thing that makes elite capture more or less severe would be the existence and strength of institutions or social practices that exist in part to constrain elite capture so at a consistent level of basic inequality and in wealth or status or political offices whatever Variables we're thinking of. The other thing that's going to decide how much elite capture there is, is how strong are the non elite protecting institutions, things like unions, things like regulations, things like an independent judiciary, or, you know, whatever the modes of checking elite impunity are in a given society. And so, you know, those kind of systemic things help answer a lot of particular kinds of questions, right? How easy is it to find a route from, you know, thinking about identity politics to living that out as a job? It's probably going to be harder when getting education requires you to be in tens of thousands of dollars of student debt. Um, it's probably going to be harder in a situation where the only jobs that can pay the kind of money that can keep pace with your student debt and the interest from that student debt are the kinds of jobs offered to you by Bay and capital. Right. Um, those are structural aspects of how education is provisioned and how money is provisioned that count in favor of a particular way of thinking of identity politics and everything else. Right. Um, and those are ecological aspects of how power and money are distributed in society, but it doesn't have to be jobs out of college. We could be thinking of the media, right? It takes resources to develop a perspective and get that perspective out there. Um, the perspectives that circulate in TV, in radio, are going to be the ones disproportionately held by the people who are in a position to do that. And those people live in different circumstances than most people. Right. So the underlying forces that decide how money circulates, how attention circulates, how jobs circulate, these basic aspects of our social architecture are doing the explaining.
1: Yeah, it, I, I feel like it's worth sort of drilling down a little bit on this point, because I think it's a common reaction to see this type of cynical weaponization of of identity politics, you know, the, the, you mentioned the humans of CIA sort of advertising campaign, um, you know, the corporate pride floats, you know, all the things, uh, uh, I saw recently Rod Dreher was getting really mad about, uh, pride and Juneteenth ice cream, um, that Walmart was selling under its Walmart brand. Um you know that walmart's gone woke because you can buy Juneteenth ice cream, and you know this this is like downfall of western liberalism, and you know so so people will will see this like the the hollowness of this particular aspect of identity politics as as practiced, and be like ah, oh, this is bullshit, we need to go we need to do class only you know we need to stop thinking about racism, you know and just do you know, union or whatever, you know, something or just become a frothing reactionary like Rodreyer. But, um, you, you take a more, you know, uh, um, a moderate, a, the, um, a more nuanced approach is a better word. Uh, uh, you know, thinking about this outside of like the context of, it you know there're being annoying things out there and to say that like no there's there's aspects of identity politics that can be salvaged and in, you know and in fact like the, in on some level at least all politics is identity politics because all politics is bound up in you know like people's conception of the self and how they relate to the you know their own community and so on so can you like sort of um d- uh dig into that a little bit about you know how we should relate to these sort of things and how they might be, you know, really obnoxious.
2: Rod Drager, is that the primitive root wiener guy?
1: Yep. Yep. <laughs> it is. Oh, he wears Absolutely. his pathologies on his sleeve, man. He is.
0: Yes. He, just.
1: <laughs> oh, you can't he, make
0: him up. You, you know?
1: You hate to I see a guy who would have been perfectly happy growing up like at the YMCA in, in you know, New York City in the 1980s. But, uh, you know, ended up in Louisiana instead. And, uh, That's rough. Very sad.
2: Uh, um. All right. So that answers one question that I had. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I can answer your questions. Now. Um. So... Yeah, I hear this a lot, um, and I get, I get it on the level of frustration, right? You know, when we on the left are talking about injustice. Um, and and here I'm grouping, you know, the so-called identitarian left with the so-called class reductionist left or, you know, however you want to split these up. Um, but when we over here talk about injustice, we really mean the things that we say. And when Walmart makes Juneteenth ice cream, they don't mean the things that they say. And so, you know, if identity politics is a vehicle that lets them lie, then, you know, identity politics is bad. Right. I, I take it that's. More or less, how the reasoning goes, and you know, you've just got to. I think if you're on the left, really, even if you're not, you just kind of have to make peace with the fact that you know, large organizations that hoard power in this society are gonna lie about stuff, um, and you know, like yeah, it's not. The way it goes. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just you know, that's just what this is. And it's not that politically <laughs> clarifying, right? You know, right. they they lie about helpful things, they lie about unhelpful things. You know, the people who were defending slavery also talked about how important freedom was. Right? It's not because freedom wasn't important. They were just lying about it, right? Or they had, you know, messed up opinions about they had Genuinely held messed up opinions about what freedom was or who deserved freedom, you know, however we want right. to explain it. Right. But it just it isn't for the other side to decide what it is that we can use and what it is that we can think of and yeah. what it is that is true. Um, that's 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 just a fundamental disagreement about how we read politics off of the world. But I think I have with maybe some of the critics of identity politics. Who are criticizing isn't it a politics.
0: certain kind of victory to I mean. It's a certain kind of victory in a weird way that reactionaries have to use the language of freedom. And even Trump, as ridiculous as he was, had to say, I'm the most anti-racist president ever. You know, like, like there's a kind of victory there in the same way that Ryan and I once saw a pride, uh, parade. We're like, Oh, this is great. Then we saw sponsored by Google, like on the, and we're like, how should we feel about this? But then we thought about it and we're like, I guess it's like on one level pretty good, right? Like it's not bad that. Popular culture says we must have support for the LGBTQ right, Q community. Yeah. Like there's a sense in which that's good, but the bad thing we can take on in a different way, right? The thing right. where it's doing work to cover for what the change has to actually be to make a difference in people's material lives, right? That's, a, that's almost a separate thing, right? In a way.
2: Yeah. I mean, clearly on the plane of ideology or superstructure or whatever we want to call it, you know, it's, it's, it's just clearly a victory, they used to not have to pretend to right. oppose yeah. <laughs> racism, and you know, we didn't like it back then. That you was know? worse. Like, that was worse, <laughs> yeah. actually. You know, so I, uh, yeah, I, I think we should just take the occasional W. It's not like we have a lot of those on the left. So, yeah, yeah let's let's take that and run with it. But, but, but the question of whether or not it's going to, you know, whether or not they're going to be, u- be able to use that one bit of seeded ground to protect the rest of what they have. That's not a question about the ideological content of identity politics. That's a question of right. the success or failure of the social movements that we build with identity politics or with whatever else. Um, but I happen to think identity politics is actually positive. And potentially helpful for building said social movements.
0: So, so then, how does elite capture get in the way? Because we might have our liberal friends that that maybe we have some liberal friends listening uh, other than leftists who might say, "Well, wait, I still don't get what's wrong with with I mean, the elites are appropriating uh, the right things, and the elites are in power. That means power is in favor of the things we're in favor of. What's the problem with Nancy Pelosi doing a kneel and like isn't that good? What? Why is this not the road to transformative
2: change? Right. Because you forgot the transformative part. <laughs> <Yeah>. ah, shoot. <laughs> Darn it! It's important. It's not, <laughs> it's not a negligible part of this shit, you know? Um, yeah, so, you know, I think there's there's a model of the world. It's, it's the model of the world we usually um, associate with idealists, whether or not this is a caricature is, you know, endless debate, right? But but there's a way of thinking about the world that says, okay, here's how we change things, right? We change people's minds. Then, because their minds are changed, they decide to do different stuff than they otherwise would have done. And then things are better. And it's not like that has nothing to do with how social change works. Of course, we're thinking creatures and it matters how we think and what we think and what we think about, uh, if we're thinking about attention. Right. Um, So all those things are relevant, but you know, one change to our behavior could be wearing Kente cloth and kneeling. Right. Um, And that is not necessarily the kind of behavior change that is the stuff of social transformation. Right. Even, you know, That's even, that is even a, you know, maybe not the best example because it's not clear that Pelosi, even at the level of beliefs, accepts, yeah, yeah, Yeah. you know, accepts what people were fighting in the streets for in the summer of 2020. Right. Um, But, you know, all this symbolic stuff that Will capital is doing, all the painting of Black Lives Matter on various things, including the literal street here in D.C., Um, you know, that is not necessarily the stuff of social transformation. And so we have to accept and understand that one of the things about social systems, one of the things about inequality, one of the things about hierarchies of power is that the social system doesn't respond to everybody's thoughts and feelings in the same way. Um, more to the point, people doesn't the system doesn't respond to everybody's behavior in the same way. Right? Um, it turns out you only needed five people to put Roe v. Wade in jeopardy, and so the fact that seventy percent of people think that abortion should be part of healthcare doesn't actually turn out to be the thing that decides the matter. And this is something that any sensible analysis of power should tell you. And that's something that we should take to heart.
1: I, <clears throat> I want to dig into that a little bit later, um, but I'd like to take a quick, like a sort of side note before I forget about this, because in your book, you talk about somebody I'd never heard of, you know, as a as a, apparently a bad student of American history, a fellow named Carter Woodson. Um, a a a guy, if I, if I remember correctly, who was born from two uh you know freed slaves, um after the Civil War and the you know emancipation and um, Reconstruction made himself a career, uh as a black intellectual in like the the uh you know the the Gilded Age South. Uh, and and well, in the in the rest of the country, and that strikes me as about the most difficult intellectual project as possible to imagine. Um, I mean, it's up there at least. But could you explain, you know, ju- uh, because this guy was so fascinating, and I I, I, I uh, di- didn't want to miss out on it. Who, uh, what was this guy's deal? You know, what what sort of um stuff did he did he advocate, and you know, ideas and stuff?
2: Yeah, Carter G. Woodson has been a big intellectual influence on me and lots and lots of people. Right. Um he studied history at Harvard. Um Harvard at that time, we're talking like turn of the uh twentieth century, turn into the twentieth century. Um it's like late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. There there were two black people who had gotten PhDs at Harvard at that point. Um, the first was W.E.B. Du Bois, who we've heard of, and the second was Carter G. Woodson, who we've also heard of, right? Um, so, you know, Carter G. Woodson had a much different route to Harvard than, you know, lots of people did now or then. You know, this guy was literally working in coal mines, And, um, a lot of his early political education was reading the newspaper to his fellow minors, um, his, his mother, um, his mother, Anna had made sure that all the kids got education. Um, and she was in the rare position of being, um, literate even while she was enslaved. Um, and so they, you know, they took education very seriously in the family. Um, and then, um, Cargie Woodson went to a racially integrated college in Kentucky that was started by an abolitionist. Um, and with that education got to go teach in, uh, the Philippines, which had become a U.S. colony after the Spanish American war. And... Between the Philippines and his travels throughout Asia and Europe and Africa, he put together this kind of materialist, to my thinking, way of understanding what education was even about. So he's in this variety of colonial situations. And he writes in the really important book, The Miseducation of the Negro." Like, look, these people are working out education systems to produce the kind of people that will be congenial to their imperial interests, right? That's how they're deciding what information to impart, what kind of, uh, you know, levels of self-reliance to aim for in different education systems. They're not particularly good at this, right? They, <laughs> right? They, they don't teach white kids well. They don't, they certainly don't teach black kids well and teach Filipino kids well. Um, but, you know, that's at least the kind of organizing principle. And we can do better, right? We could do better if we thought seriously about what we want education for which is to live full self-determined lives. And if that was the organi- organizing principle of what we did in classrooms and besides. So, you know, not only did he, you know, think a lot about education, but he thought a lot about knowledge and information networks in general. You know, uh, he started a uh, history society for getting out black history and combating a very intentional imperial project of suppressing Black history. He, you know, um, led kind of cultural movements to disseminate to, to disseminate this knowledge. Uh, black History Month, I believe, comes from is Woodson's efforts among you know all of Woodson's kinds of comrades. So it was a very you know he was not just. Thinking, how can we make make these textbooks better? But how does this fit into the project of social domination writ large? Um, That's the thing that I took from him.
0: It seems really important to your project, and and we'll get to hopefully, um, and maybe we'll we'll leap ahead. Who knows? Why do we have to be linear? We can leap to the constructive politics answer to some of the problematic. Um, politics that you refer to as like deferential politics uh, that comes from certain appropriations of standpoint epistemology. Um, But since we're talking about education, maybe you can talk about Paulo Freire as well. Because when we were speaking of elite capture, you mentioned that – it 's not just that they have the literal material resources and positions of power. you spoke about how there's elite capture of our attention of knowledge of our values and and this clearly links up to the resistance that is needed to influence uh, our ways of thinking of how we how we value things uh, our you know uh, ideological perspectives, and so forth. Um, so maybe you can talk a bit about the kind of liberatory emancipatory politics of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, right? And and how um, that might fit into the constructive politics vision that you have.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's a really strong affinity between the way that Woodson was thinking about um, education, in particular, the way that black students were being miseducated, um, and the way that Paulo Freire also thought that black students and poor Brazilians in general as well were being miseducated um frady has this interesting way of of talking about it and uh theorizing about it he calls it the kind of banking model right but you know students are thought of as vessels to be sort of filled with information and the kind of creative capacities of students the um, capacities of students to generate information and to share it with the teacher are not just things about how classroom interactions go, but the thing that's at stake there is like, look, are you a self-determined person? Are you being trained to be a self-determining person or are you be- being trained to be determined by other people? Are you being trained in compliance and, you know, all these kind of servile attributes that, you know, are of obvious interest for people who want to dominate power um, and not of interest to people who want it to be democratically shared? So, Freddie, um has this different way of thinking about, um, what it is that should be happening in classrooms, he calls cons- he calls it, um, which is not really all that translatable of a word. Uh, I guess you could say critical consciousness maybe is close to the kind of thing that he's trying to say. Um, but teaching should be transformative. right What we should be doing as teachers, as students is, you know, participating with each other in this collaborative process of sort of mutual emancipation, mutual tooling up to be self-determined together. So it's, you know, his ideal model of education is coalitional. That's the same kind of thing that we should be trying to do in politics in general. It starts off with a hierarchy and a power imbalance. And it's not as though that disappears by magic. Um, but we don't have to take maintaining that power imbalance to be the point of the interaction the way that banking, the right. banking model does.
0: It's beautiful to me because that is not – being learning to be woke, right? Like, right. like, it seems to me that being woke is kind of a performance. It's symbolic. What you're talking about is like a collective thing that empowers agency to build things and to do things in the world that have consequences and outcomes, as you say, ra- rather than just certain uh, appearances or or certain kind of uh, tokenistic uh, expressions or or something, right? It's, it, it's, and it, but you can see how the way you were describing it, it could be Conflated with something like learning to be woke Right like I've learned that the, the history Now and I, I'm I'm Going to virtue signal about what I now know That's not what you're talking about right
2: Yeah it's very far from that right Like if you see yeah. you know An obligatory Disclaimer like I didn't hear White people say the word woke until like Six years ago or something I don't know when this <laughs> happened I don't know when this happened um, But like it means a very Different thing now than you know, and I think we all recognize that, but I think it's, it's just worth yeah. saying. Um, whatever, yeah, whatever we throw this term around, but the way people use this term nowadays, um, the kinds of things they're marking are really, I mean, they seem and sound really didactic to me, right? Like, oh, you, you're saying something, what you just said is problematic and I'm going to tell you why it's problematic and, you know, the mark of whether or not this is a good interaction, whether or not you're a good person is if you accept my account of why it's problematic. And if you don't accept my account, that too is problematic. And then we can have another, (laughs) you know, version of that same discussion. Like that's all banking model shit. You know, it's not,
0: it's like policing too. It's a kind of policing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But you know, it's the light kind of, you know, curmudgeonly Catholic school teacher, wrapping your hand on the knuckles kind of policing, you know. Um, but but it is, yeah, it is very much this it's not even so much the investment in a weird, very, very mild form of domination that gets me, so much as the lack of investment in the many other things we could be doing with this knowledge that that gets me, right? We could be doing the critical consciousness thing. We could be doing the transforming each other via transforming ourselves and vice versa together in order to make it matter that we know what things are problematic and what things aren't. And that's what comes what circles back to what we were talking about earlier with the fact that the social system doesn't respond to everybody's. Um, opinions in the same way um, there are some people who it doesn't respond to at all right it just isn't it is not obviously let me let me put it this way changing people's minds letting them know what is and isn't problematic is a rosier view of the world than I think is warranted right you you think that you know what it is to protect people's rights or protect people's dignity is for people to know things. Um, but, you know, f- or for more people to know things or for people in this room to know things. Um, but I think the powers that be know that whoever can o- successfully give police, pe- police officers an order, you know, those are the opinions that are going to decide who gets to do what, right? Whoever it is that can order around, the cops and ICE and Border Patrol and the Pentagon—those you know, are the peoples whose beliefs are going to shape things. Are going to be allowed to shape things, and unless and until you know, we put together the kinds of social movements that are capable of restraining that kind of basic coercive power. And until we do that, you know, it doesn't really matter what you and I agree is problematic. It matters mean, what they agree is problematic.
0: Is this why your constructive politics is talking about outcomes and unity? Because um, one of the things it seems like you're saying isn't necessarily as helpful. There's a lot of oppositional politics, uh, you know, anti-racism, anti-colonialism, anti – a lot of things to be against. And there's this model of of, kind of struggle and opposition Although it sounds like that is really important when we're building these social movements. So, so help, help us understand what you think is, is the best path forward to, to kind of constructive change and transformative change. Um, how is the unity that, that we're talking about here that maybe connects us back to the original meaning of identity politics and intersectionality? How is that different from a kind of oppositional approach to politics where, where it's like us against them and, and we're against something?
2: Yeah so so I want to make sure to be you know to make sure that I'm being clear about this like protest is good and you need to oppose things right some of the things that are currently happening in the world are are bad and some of the social forces and people and uh, parties that exist in the world are are bad and they have to lose for us to... I could think of two parties that are particularly bad. I don't know if you're, you... <laughs> at least two. <laughs>
0: at, least, at least two.
2: <laughs> um, you know, and, and they have to lose for us to win at making a just world, a good world, that actually works to safeguard the interests of everybody rather than the profit and security of it's, it's just true that there are things in this world that have to be changed or challenged to get that done. But what I'm wary about is the way that opposition becomes its own politics. Um, and I I just don't see... I don't see anything good coming of that. All right. One, one point I like to make just to kind of get people on the same page quickly with at least how I'm thinking about it is just, you know, there were lots of opponents of say British imperialism, you know, in the middle 19th century, right? Like all the other empires, (laughs) <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. From a, from a moral position or from a pragmatic political position, you know, defeating an enemy worth defeating, even fighting an enemy worth defeating, didn't necessarily, in and of itself, put you on the good side of things. You know, to the to the extent that there even was a good side of things, and in a lot of the wars of that century and every other century, it's been far from clear that there was any good side of things right um it's conflict just doesn't answer all the political questions that we have surely we can't build a universal healthcare system if there are republicans but it's neither is it true that you know the destruction of the republican party would be the same thing as putting hospitals and clinics in every you know community that needs them and putting them close to people and getting community health workers to make home visits to people who are elderly or disabled or just given birth. Like those are fundamentally different projects. It requires different skills, different capacities, answering different questions and doing different stuff. And, you know, you can't punch your way to those kinds of victories. And that's really the thing that I'm trying to say with constructive politics. Um, we have to build the things that we want to exist in the
1: world.
0: We can still punch Nazis. Though, oh, right? for sure. Okay, yeah. okay. Just making sure that's okay. Yeah. That's just not the only thing we're, we should do. Right.
1: That, that <laughs> section of the book, actually, <clears throat> I recently reread um, James McPherson's book about the civil war. Um, and, and it struck me that, that, it, that it was maybe like a, a pretty significant example of just exactly what you were talking about here in the union war effort, where they were at the same time uh, attacking this hideously immoral institution of slavery uh, while revitalizing to a fantastic degree, the uh, material economic institutions of the country. Um, you had the land grant colleges that to this day are like some of the best universities in the world. Um, You had the Homestead Act, problematic, stolen from the Indians to like a lot of it. But, you know, it was a redistribution of wealth to some degree. Uh, You had a a huge reform of the banking system. You had um, an abolishment of the gold standard temporarily. Um, Massive infrastructure projects all over the place. Um, and so, you know, it, it was, uh, eventually, I think a recognition of the fact that in order to achieve, you know, this, this like political egalitarian Republican, small R Republican goal that they had set for themselves and large R Republican, actually. But now that I think about it back in them days, uh, they had to, you know, do both things at the same time. They had, they had to deal with the, uh you know the the uh identity politics uh as it were that wasn't called that back then of of de- slavery and the the prejudice against uh black people to some you know it was imperfect victory to be sure but ma- major progress was made temporarily um and at the same time you know revitalize the institutions of the country um, such that the the victory could actually be achieved, and that seems like s- sort of like a, a a decent example of the type of you know collective project that you're talking about, right? A co- collective emancipation of like the the whole country done in a pretty pragmatic way.
2: Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels of that period of the history, right? A lot of um. A lot of African Americans went to go fight with the Union Army. It's not because those people weren't racist; those people were <laughs> racist as hell. You know, um, they dealt with constant discrimination at every level of service in the yeah. Union Army war effort. But they also beat the Confederacy, and you know, people kind of had their eyes on the prize there. And they didn't just stop at beating the Confederacy, like you said. That whole effort involved huge, large-scale changes to the entire political, social, and economic um, foundations of the whole country. But on top of that, after beating the Confederacy, there was a whole social-level effort to reconfigure and dramatically reshape of those institutions and the years of reconstruction that's that's the term for the historical period the years of reconstruction that followed the end of the civil war are some of the most progressive periods in the entire history of the united states because people who had been enslaved and you know the people who were their comrades um radical republicans um, as they, as they were then, were, were fighting to reshape the entire basic social institutions. They were fighting for reparations. They were fighting for, um, the right to hold political office and vote. They were fighting to end exclusions over, you know, racially stratified exclusions over who could own property and what the terms of work could be, all those sorts of things. So they were fighting to build something. Um, and they did build uh, many things. And if it weren't for a huge wave of reactionary violence, um, that those projects would have succeeded.
0: Yeah, that that seems right. I mean, we're hoping for a new reconstruction that actually works, right? And and we are of course seeing the reactionary backlash even ahead of <laughs> the emancipatory move, which is, you know, a preemptive strike from the right. Uh this this is kind of the weirdness with the woke stuff. It, you know, if you go by like Cory Robbins reactionary mind, usually it's it's the actual emancipatory power of the left that gets reacted to that that mobilizes the right. But now it's this weird thing where like wokeness that that term itself or like pretends critical race theory not even real critical race theory mobilizes massive reaction and, and that actually changes laws that abrogate the first Amendment it's crazy right um so so we should have you back on by the way for reconsidering reparations because that, that's that's <laughs> awesome but but can you can maybe tease that because I think it's good that you brought that up as part of the constructive politics like what what is what is um Reconstruction and a new kind of view of what reparations today would mean. uh, What would that look like to combat these reactionary forces? Like what maybe tease a little bit, the connection between your two books for us, if you don't mind.
2: So I think regardless um, it would look like again um, in the high level, abstract version, changing the fundamental conditions of social and political life. Concretely, I think that comes down to distributions, distributions of economic power and distributions of political power. Clear way to redistribute political or sorry, economic power is cash money, <laughs> right? I, you know,
1: we know it. We love it.
2: We know it. We true. love it. Fuck <laughs> the dumb shit. Give people money, right? Um, yeah. Unconditional yeah. cash transfers. There's a mountain of research at this point. Um, just do it. Yeah,
0: the ivory tower endorses the helicopter. It's like, give the money.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's a variety of ways that could be packaged. Uh, Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen have one, um, have one model that's, uh, kind of trust fund based and it would have a, a, board to do some administering over it. Uh, Dorian Warren over at the economic security project talks about a universal basic income, um, um, but a universal basic income plus with an additional amount for African American descendants of slavery. Um, Darity and Mullins is targeted directly at African American descendants of slavery. But, like, that's, those are the things, you know, to me, that's step one. If you do nothing else, do that. Um, but I think decision making power is also a thing to redistribute. It's not, an accident that the dollars ended up in the bank accounts that they ended up in. right? It has to do with who gets to decide how the dollars get made. Right. Um, and where they go afterwards. So there's a variety of things you could do to shift political power and decision-making away from the kind of bot elites who could be lobbied, and blah blah to yeah. regular folks um, this would be especially powerful if done at the community level and then it could be targeted okay. towards people who are uh, you know the racialized working class um, black and indigenous folks in particular right. um but uh you know community control over stuff what yes. stuff all the stuff the black panthers were talking about in the 70s Land, housing, education, energy. Um, In an era of climate crisis, I might put a little asterisk by energy. It seems important. Um, But in general, uh, community-level decision-making, there's a lot of ways you could operationalize that. Maybe we uh, have uh, citizens' assemblies make the laws. Um, Maybe we allow... The state legislatures to make the laws, but we have uh, participatory budgeting. And so yeah. the dollars get divvied up by something like a town hall format, but uh, the money and power are the basic. Yeah.
0: Democratize power and de- democratize the economy, yeah. democratize control, yeah. all these. Ma- if I may, why, because I think this is something that people really don't know much about, why is the deferential politics that come from standpoint epistemology? not helpful in achieving all of those great things like what what is the what is lacking there because we have a lim- limited amount of time and we have to pick our strategies right well i i think people might not get what the problem is because it seems so helpful uh, we've talked a little bit about changing people's minds is not enough but like I, uh, you know look every institution now in higher education has a diversity uh, uh equity and inclusion um you know committee and, and uh, Angela Davis once said, I don't want to be included in an empire, you know, that, but like, you know, that, that there's, there's, there's reasons why it's not enough to, to, to do these kind of things, but maybe you could talk a bit about what you wrote about an elite capture uh, about why, what you just described isn't necessarily something we can get so easily through that path.
2: Yeah. So you start off with an act of deference, right? Sometimes some days, some situations you know maybe the thing to do is to look around and say you know who thinks likely who looks like they might know the answer to this question or or who do i feel like i should take direction from on this occasion and that's often you know the very smart thing to do sometimes it's the only thing to do um acts of deference are fine um but you might take that thing that you might do in a given conversation or action or something and say, that's my, you know, that's my plan. A That is my general approach to politics, I'm going to have the opinions, support the causes, um, articulate the analysis that a person or people from this or that marginalized group tell me to do. And I think that gets a lot wrong, um, but I think the quickest way into my set of beefs with that way of thinking and acting come from, you know, just a few guesses about how that's going to go, right? It's not as though, you know, we spin a lotto wheel and pick out a marginalized person and interact with that person, right? Who do you interact with? You interact with the particular people that you encounter, which is highly not random. You interact with you interact with the people at your job. You interact, you know, in my case with people um who have gone through a literal admissions process, right? Um a weighing of things that decide whether or not they were going to get to be in rooms like university classrooms, right? A society, an aspect of society sat down and said, these people get to do it and those people don't. And much more of society is implicitly like that than we think sometimes, you know, there's certain kinds of experiences you're likely to find First person accounts of if you're in a prison, and there are certain kinds of experiences you're likely to have access to first person accounts of if you're in the boardroom of Bain Capital. (laughs) And we know all this. So, you know, all we have to do is think if my approach to deference is to. Just start off with wherever I happen to be, whoever's opinions I happen to have access to, and then find the marginalized people within that, and then defer to them, which marginalized people is it likely to be, right? It's probably Joy Reid. Let's keep it a buck, right? So, you know, that. Yeah. I don't think that that is a model is she poor?
0: remind us to is she poor? Cause I'm trying to do the intersectional <laughs> analysis. Is, I, don't
2: I don't know her background, but I imagine she's doing well now. Okay. I <laughs> <Right>? just wondering. <laughs> you know, um, MSNBC does have a good number of viewers. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So, you know, it's a procedure. It's a way of relating to the world that kind of bakes in. That's, ton of inequalities and then at the final stage when you're looking around the room you happen to be in then says I'm going to pay attention to marginalization now and um, I just don't, I don't think much of that as a practice even for the question of what should I say in this room or this particular conversation um, but much more importantly that just strikes me as the wrong question Fundamentally. It's not about how do we interact in these particular circumstances. You know how to interact. You're an adult. Don't S- say hello. Don't be an asshole. Right. right? Don't be a and, dick. And That's do right. your best. You know, like listen to what other people are saying yeah. and be honest, all that good shit, right? Um, you know, the hard part isn't uh, how do I make it unscathed out of this conversation. The hard part is how do I make it unscathed out of this you know, contentious interaction with the police. And, you know, that's the hard part. And that's the part you might need organization and uh, people power and all those kinds of things to deal with. And you are not, you know, (laughs) anti-racist book list away from getting those things. Even if it's my book, sorry to say.
1: <laughs> yeah, the the, you f- the police thing. I, th- you know, I mean, it's it strikes me as maybe a, a little bit important to mention that you know you, you can you can have you know representatives of marginalized groups who are die hard police uh, partisans and apologists. Eric Adams, mayor of the largest city in the country, and Lori Lightfoot. Mayor of the third largest city in the country are just absolutely in the tank for these psychotic. I mean, Lightfoot, especially she's raiding the CPS, the, the, the public school budget to give uh, to the cops. And it's been a bigger pot. Like we're into the hundreds of millions of dollars this year. And it's just, you know, it's. I mean, it's it's obvious, of course. You know, the people are people. People can be any kinds of weird that you might uh, happen, and there's no guarantee that having any sort of identity marker would be. But like, really having it driven home, you can be a black woman and, and be stealing bread out of the mouths of Chicago public school kids to give to the the Chicago cops.
0: Well, and this is the structural point yes. that we're making, right? Like, this is why hiring more female prison guards is not feminist or the CIA director is a woman. That's great for feminism, <laughs> right? It's, it's why, like, that you know, the point isn't the individuals. It's what are they doing with respect to power, right? Right. Yeah,
2: yeah it's, it's what are the individuals doing with respect for power? Um, but I also think, you know, just to that same point, I think along the same lines, what are the sides of the battle? Right. What are the sides of the conflict? And I think this is a this is an area where the lack of internationalism and U.S. politics has really, you know, done double duty in messing things up because it's just so obvious in every other context. Right. I, I've, you know, I don't think I've ever had this conversation about whether or not. You know, black people could support bad causes or something. I, I don't think I've ever had that conversation with a Nigerian person. <laughs> it's like it's like we know, you know, all the sides: good, bad, neutral, uninvolved. All this, all those are black people, right? Um, that's a way that things go in in the world right now. The biggest right wing party is probably in India. <laughs> you know, this history has always worked because you know the system um has been able to the systems of power have been able to peel off support from oppressed classes it is a millennia old technique of colonial domination it is
0: I mean, newsflash, we're all human beings yeah. and therefore we're all tempted by power and therefore we can betray, you know, the, the interests of, of gl- groups we belong to. And therefore, Mark says utopian socialism doesn't fucking work because you're asking people in power to betray their own interests. Good on you if you get a class traitor here and there, but that's not the route to transformation. <laughs> like just, yeah. let's just hope, let's just hope everyone in power just like thinks differently and then just gives it all up, you know?
2: and and you know there's the kind of shadows of that thought in the criticism of identity politics right as if if we just truly appreciated you know which causes are worthy of the radical aesthetic that you know that would i don't know suffice to stem the tide of left losses or something like it's
1: you know, it it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I, 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 um, talking about Nigeria reminds me of, of, you know, South Africa, which is of course a very long ways from, from Nigeria, but I, I lived there for two years. Um, and it, it isn't just the case that, you know, you have, you know, black people in power after the end of apartheid, but you have like heroes of the apartheid struggle, who are now, uh, you know, working for these ruthless, uh, mega corporations and or in jail, like Jacob Zuma was. <laughs> Luckily, Nelson Mandela did not end up, uh, you know, on that list, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think it speaks to, you know, the, the, the structural quality of the problem. And I think maybe in this, the case of South Africa, the sort of bad timing of coming, you know, of age as a democracy at the, like high tide of neoliberalism, um, and, you know, free trade and whatnot. Um, I have just one more question for you, Femi, if you have time. Um, you know, you have an, uh, an interesting point. It's a little bit of a side note here, but you talk about the, the, what I might call the epistemology of, of trauma. And I, in a way that I think is, is pretty, uh, pretty instructive. But can you sort of, you know, go into this, you know, the, this point about, how, uh, experiencing trauma may or may not be, you know, uh, um, uh, value valuable in terms of, you know, someone's experience and, uh, competence.
2: Yeah, it goes, it goes to what, uh, we were just talking about and what you were just saying, you know, in the context of people who had been, who were veterans of the national liberation struggles ending up you know, being on the wrong side of things later. Um, there's there's definitely a connection to that. But just in general, one of the things I've been trying to think through is how to think about trauma. And I always, you know, I always want to start off by saying the fact that we're taking it seriously is a political advance. Um, it was a overtly political advance um, in the U.S. Women's liberation movements and uh, the, liber- the women's liberation movement and um, the, of course, largely male anti war movement, um, of, of veterans, the, the veterans wing of the anti war movement were pivotal in making trauma something that researchers took seriously, um, kind of renewing researchers' interests in trauma, um, which has a lot to do with, um, the later kind of cultural interest in trauma that we have now. And I think, that is clearly an advance and something that we need to keep going. But part of taking trauma seriously, I think, is, you know, tra- is taking a critical eye on this kind of trauma as expertise way of relating to trauma that has developed and sort of attached itself to certain versions of identity politics. And it's, in a lot of ways, the furthest thing from my sort of instincts and I guess experience, um, firsthand and secondhand with trauma, um, I don't think that it's appropriate or helpful or even respectful really to treat trauma as a kind of credential um, in the way that it's, it's come to function in some communities. I just don't think that's what trauma is. And we have lots of, testimony and social science and you know this that and the third to suggest that you know a really common thing that can happen with trauma is that messes you up temporarily or not so temporarily right it makes it harder for you to relate to other people and for you to trust other people and for you to um you know exist in a healthy way alongside with other people um it's for a lot of people an obstacle, it can be overcome, especially when you have a scaffolding of strong, healthy relationships um, where people hold you accountable for things and where people um, help you with things and where people maintain these reciprocal relationships with you, Um, but it takes work it takes a recognition that there is something to be overcome to have that healthy relationship with trauma. Um, And that's the kind of relationship that is most compatible with growth and resilience. And Mm. it's the kind that's worth cultivating, I think.
0: That's beautiful. And it strikes me that there's a lot of people, with profound wisdom and excellences that come from trauma. And then there's like Donald Trump, which is like, of course, he's tr- been traumatized because to be that kind of guy, like he went through some shit. I'm sure his father was probably a real piece of work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. like that could produce a Donald Trump as a result of trauma. Right. Right. Um, if you have time for one last quick question, if, if you don't mind, my friend, uh, and, and this is, this is uh, per our buddy, David Kybe on the left, we have these internecine battles and, and you know, given your vision for constructive politics, what, what's like, what does productive conflict look like when we have these kind of, whether it's within DSA or, or just like, how do we work together to have this positive constructive vision to build things when we have such big differences we're trying to work out, even when we self-identify on the left, even even within the left, right?
2: There are two things that come to my mind um, under this heading. Um, one is the kind of affordance view of constructive politics. right? So, so affordances are just aspects of the built environment that make stuff usable. right? If you want people to bike, maybe make a bike path. If you want some people to carry something, give it a handle, right? That kind of thought. And, you know, we can agree on building those things without agreeing on much else, right? Maybe this group thinks we should be biking over here, and maybe this group thinks we should be biking over there. Maybe, you know, there's tandem bike tendency or whatever, right? Just make a bike path and people can kind (laughs) of, yeah, people can, (laughs) you know, um, and I think analogs of that are things like, you know, some of these left publications, right. um, Or databases or strike funds, right. You don't have to agree with, you know, every single constituent strike demand to think like, look, it will help the union, to have a bedrock of funds to be able to use in the event of a strike. And I'm going to commit to that even if I have disagreements with this or that section of the rank and file or whatever it might be, right? So a focus on building those kinds of usable things like unions themselves and not just strike funds, um, but usable organizations, usable stuff, um, things that make a practical difference in uh, fighting for things. But on the level of political culture or, you know, the way that we think and our kind of moral norms and habits as far as disagreement, this is actually one of the things that I find most promising about identity politics. Um, And that is... You know, maybe I'll just sum it up as separation without sectarianism. Right? We can. We don't necessarily need you know one or two or maybe even any you know huge organizations. Um, maybe that would be good for tactical or strategic reasons. Um, but even if we had ones of those, not everybody could would or should be in those organizations right? some people just i mean we're all we're all lefties right some people don't play well with others right <laughs> i
1: <laughs> don't know what, you you know what you're that? talking about <laughs> i don't know in fact i denounce you sir for implying that that we could ever have any quarrels on the left and it's never happened you know what trotsky taught me
2: some people just you know they're they're just there's not that many people they can get along with because of personality um um but sometimes it's not because of necessarily personality in a freestanding sense. But, you know, relating across differences is hard. That's part of why these social differences were made in the first place. Right. right. There's, right. there's right. black people who really just aren't trying to organize with people who aren't black. Just not about it. I think that's fine. Right. Yeah. There are trans people who have had it up to here with cis people shit. And aren't trying to organize with us I think that's fine Right I think not only is that fine I think we should be Encouraging people To get involved With whoever they're willing To get involved with Mm, Yeah rather than insisting that everybody should have like the same amount of comfort with any particular conceivable difference, just because that's what the movement needs at the scale of ecology. Rather than doing that, we could say like, look, there's going to have to be some active coalitional work and the people who are willing to do that and able to do that in all of the senses of willing and able should do that work. But there's other kinds of work that doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, done by a big tent and the people who don't want to do the coalition stuff should go and do that, don't do that. But all that stuff needs to happen. And identity politics is not the only way, but it is one way of, you know, reconciling particular kinds of contingents, differences and, you know, s- splits, you could even say with, Nevertheless, the fact that there's a whole society level thing that we need to somehow accomplish together across these different organizations and different sites of contest.
0: Right on. Each their own weapons. I only will organize with academics, journalists, and podcasters.
2: That's, <laughs> <are> my- <laughs> I'm only organizing with podcasters. Um, yes! <laughs> Left anchor <laughs> leaving- victory. Excellent. <laughs> leaving academics behind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You've had enough. <laughs> Well, this has been
2: great, Femi. I really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is cool.
1: Yeah, much obliged, Um, Femi Taiwo. The book is called Elite Capture: How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. It is available at your preferred literature distribution facility, Um, and I, you know, definitely encourage folks to go and uh, check it out. Absolutely,
0: it's aesthetically beautiful as well. An adorable little book. You'll like it. I promise. Yeah, nice little
1: hand picking things up but we uh thanks for listening everybody (laughs) and we will see you in the next episode